Will you pray with me? Beyond the frailty and the weakness of this vessel, O Lord, lies a word for me. Let the natural man decrease, that we may all increase spiritually in your presence. By the spirit of truth, speak to us the truth this day, forgiving our sins and speaking from your steadfast righteousness. We pray in Jesus. Topic of the day is suffering love. Oh, good. <laughs> you wonder if the church would be filled to the rafters if we started every worship by saying, on the count of three, let's all suffer. We spend lifetimes trying to avoid suffering. We spend all our lives trying to Stay away from those things that make us suffer. And we do this in part because it's wired into us, but mostly because of the environment around us. We are being coached every day of our lives to avoid suffering within reason. Any coach who's ever had an athletic team will tell you that the only way a team gets stronger is to suffer. That our bodies become stronger in the places where they are broken down by suffering, through workouts, through training. As a man who has survived in my youth three or four broken bones and has looked at the x-rays afterwards, I can tell you we are all stronger in the broken places. Suffering is something that is a part of every human life. Suffering is a universal human existence, condition. Everyone will suffer. But we try to avoid it because when we're children, when we're small, when we're young, our physical discomfort is what teaches us how to interact with our environment around us. Don't put your hand into the fire. It burns. Don't touch the hot stove. Parents of toddlers can tell you that they warned their kid a hundred times, but there are those kids who in this world are given the ministry of going right up to the fence that you set and pushing on it as hard as they can. Some of them never even leave that as they get into adulthood. But the suffering that we find in this world can actually teach us how to interact with our environments. When we have a fever, we know we should see the doctor or seek some remedy. When our stomach aches, we know to slow down on all the Christmas divinity or the fudge that our aunt made for us. But what do we need to do with the suffering that comes in a more emotional or, or mental way? How, how are we to reach out when we are suffering from life circumstances in ways that we can't tangibly say, I know not to touch that stove, or I know not to, to go into that, that patch of sticker weeds without my shoes on. 
What is the form of suffering that we are suffering is more subtle than that? What are we to do about it? Worse yet, what are we to do when we are suffering at the hands of others? When our suffering is caused by the people who are around us. At a horrific account from Elie Wiesel of his time in the Holocaust, in the, in the internment camps. The time when three people, two adults and a young boy, were placed on chairs, nooses put around their neck, and their chairs kicked out from underneath them. As they stood there in that awful moment waiting, Elie Wiesel heard a voice behind him muttering, where is God? Where is God? And the two men died instantly, but the, the boy, he was too small. His neck was not broken. It took him over a half hour to expire. And he heard someone say again, where is God? And Elie Wiesel heard himself say, there is God, right there on the gallows. He described it as a moment when his faith itself died within him. But we are Christians. And we know that even in those profound moments of suffering, when our faith dies within us, the faithfulness of God does not die. The faithfulness of God does not die. So we have come in the years since to see that, of course, God was hanging there on the gallows as he was hung on a tree 2,000 years ago, as he suffered for all of humanity. And if you miss the author of 1 Peter's point, as he's making his case in the scriptures that we heard, he talks about Jesus, even in the moment of his death, going on to preach to the souls of those who were lost in the days of Noah. Have you ever sat at a table trying to convince someone of the, of the wonder and the joy and the beauty and the grace of Christ, and then have them say to you, but what about all those people who died before Jesus? What happened to them? Well, Peter has an answer for you. It says that he preached to the souls who were in prison, but the translation of that word prison is really more like a, a holding tank where you put the guys who've had a few too many on a Saturday night, and you give them a chance to sleep it off and come to their senses. So the early church, struggling with this question, but what about those who came before Messiah, said that, they, that all of humanity was covered in the grace of God on the cross, and that all of humanity is going to have a chance to accept or reject the offering of grace that Jesus offers. And that's as far as I want to take you down that road, because I've not been to heaven and I don't know what it looks like, so everything else is pure speculation. I'm only passing on to you what the author of 1 Peter has passed on to me. That the faithfulness of God does not die, even when our faith lies dead. It's an eternal project on God's part. It concerns me because we are surrounded by advertisers, by magazine articles, by newspaper articles, by web blogs and everywhere else who are so hell-bent on avoiding suffering at all costs that
that they would have us surrender our very souls in the process. How often have you heard people say that because I've suffered, God has abandoned me? I stood in Korea in front of a mound that was about six or eight feet high across the yard from a tiny country church. Every church that we were taken on the tour that I was going with, every church had a minimum membership of 2,000 members. And the largest church had over 70,000 members at the time I visited. It's more than 100,000 now. And by the way, their parking lot is smaller than the one we have behind this church. You want to see something amazing? Watch 60,000 worshipers show up on the subways with their umbrellas during monsoon season. It's something else. But we were taken to this one church that has a very, very small membership. They're out in the middle of the countryside. In that church, during the 1920s, when the church was already 50 years old, there was a Japanese occupation of Korea and the Southern Peninsula. And there had been some skirmishing and the people from the Japanese uh, armed forces wanted to see if they could come to come some kind of an understanding with the people in the village there. So they asked all of the men to come down and meet with them at the Methodist Church in this village. It was a small little building stood up on stilts in deference to the rainy season. It was mostly wattle and thatch. And they put all the men in there and then they locked the doors of the church with a chain and a padlock and they set it on fire. And as people tried to climb out, they shot them. And the word went out, <laughs> the word went out, the word went out through all the countryside that God had removed his hand of grace from that church. And that's why this disaster had befallen them. They had 47 pastors in the next 48 years. And none of them could get anything started because the hand of God had been removed. But the 47th pastor, he began to talk about the faithfulness of God. And he began to think about what had happened in that place. And he began to see the higher purpose of God in bringing restoration to all the world. He had the graves of those who had died disinterred and put into a memorial mound about six to eight feet high. And then he built a small museum of remembrance for that event. And inside, there were stories of other atrocities, a place for the people of the countryside who still suffered to bring their suffering, if you're with me on this. And then something amazing started to happen. The national conscience of Japan began to smite the hearts of the people in Japan, that they needed to make acts of atonement in the places where they had caused acts of atrocity a generation before. And a pilgrimage started of Japanese citizens coming to that tiny little Methodist church in the middle of Methodist nowhere so that they could fall on their knees and beg forgiveness of the God of that place and of the people of that place 
for the atrocities that had been visited upon him. And it became a place of remarkable healing. Because even when our faith in God dies, the faithfulness of God remains steadfast. We live in a world that keeps trying to create a moral link between the suffering which is going to occur in everyone's life and the God of our scriptures. But such links cannot be made. They were devastated forever when Jesus hung on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. There was one sacrifice made for the sins of all humanity. And by his suffering and by his stripes, we are healed. We are healed. We are healed. This is great news for anyone who suffers. And that's all of us. So that the author of 1 Peter is crying out to the church, occasions for suffering are bound to occur in this world. You can't get away from Friends, let your suffering be accounted for righteous purposes. Suffer with a clear conscience before God. Insofar as you are able to do everything you can to see that your life is a shining light for the witness of the gospel. And when you suffer, and when you hurt, physically, mentally, emotionally, when relationships begin to suffer, Bring it all to a place where you can align it with the suffering of Christ so that our suffering in this world can be counted as a redemptive form of suffering. And that brings us to a very important place. The summer movie season is about to start. And I want to put you all on warning, I want to put up a little red flag. Here it comes. Because the most popular and the most pernicious myth in Hollywood, and when I say myth, I'm not talking about truths and falsehoods, but the, the arc of a story, a great story told. Can I let you into a little bit of a secret? You'll never watch a movie the same way again. There's a scene at the start of every movie, every movie, that screenwriters call Saving the Cat. You'll have a big guy, Dwayne Johnson or uh, Vin Diesel or somebody else, Sylvester Stallone, hey, what's up? And, uh, and there'll be a cat stuck up in a tree or a small child with a skin placed on their knee or something else. But this big, burly hero will save the cat, will do something tender. There'll be a tear in the corner of an eye, and you'll know that this is a truly wonderful and righteous and sensitive and delicate person. Now, why do they put that at the beginning of the movie? Because they have to weld your heart in sympathy to that hero. Because he's about to purchase every ounce of napalm in Hollywood. Because there's an evil in the world somewhere, a cosmic evil, or sometimes just an evil person, but there's somebody out there who's going to bring wrath and destruction on the whole world. And this hero has been anointed by the faith or by gods or by whatever else they swear by. This hero has been anointed by the heavens to go out and in the name of all that is holy, commit the most unbelievable acts of redemptive violence you have ever seen. And they're selling you something. 
And we have bought it in our generation, hook, line, and sinker. And it's the myth of redemptive violence. That if a truly righteous person commits an act of violence on behalf of God, it doesn't matter how many innocents are caught up in the battle. It doesn't matter how much of Gotham City, Gotham City is destroyed. It doesn't matter how many skyscrapers in New York are obliterated or how many innocent little ants running around who don't know about the cosmic forces of good and evil. It doesn't matter how many of them are collateral damage. As long as it's an act of redemptive violence, everything else is justified. You've seen that movie a thousand times. And it tastes good with popcorn. But the writer of Proverbs said, There's a way in the world that looks good to a man, and in the end it leads to destruction. The prophet talked about how tasty the word was on the lips, but how it turned sour and bitter in the stomach. And there's only one, one, extraordinary myth that leaps from the pages of our scriptures. You almost never see it on the screens of our movie houses. And it is the myth of redemptive suffering. You see it in the suffering songs of Isaiah, the servant songs. But you see it, of course, most perfectly revealed in Jesus, who called himself the way and the truth and the life and who suffered so that everyone could have life. We live in a world where the lottery tickets keep getting more and more expensive, or the lottery prizes. And nobody ever stops to think that when we gamble in any form, everybody in the room has to give something up so that one person can go home with everything. You ever think about that? But in the person of Jesus, we have one person who gave everything so that everyone else in the room can go home with life. The scriptures keep telling us that we should not flee from suffering, but we should turn and face it head on. Because on the other side of our suffering is a beautiful place of life and peace and joy. There's life. The popular comic Louis C.K. was on a TV show one night and he was talking about driving down the road. It was a discussion about cell phones and other things. And he was talking about driving down the road and suddenly he started remembering some things from his past that brought an overwhelming sense of sadness to him. And he said, I reached down while I was driving and I started to pick up the phone because my usual strategy is to send out a mass tweet to about 700 people and then I see he starts answering, and I decide which one I want to talk to. But he said, today, on this day, I put my phone back down, and I pulled my car to the side of the road, and I decided I'm just going to let it happen. And he said, I began to sob and weep uncontrollably, to the point where I didn't even know where this was coming from. And he said, after about two or three minutes of that, something extraordinary happened. My body itself began to produce endorphins. 
Those are the things that make you feel good, by the way. And a wave of peacefulness began to wash over me. And I found myself wiping tears and snot from my face and feeling an extraordinary sense of relief and release and of peacefulness. And I almost missed it because I reached for my cell phone. Wow. Perhaps you've begun to glimpse why God gave us the church. It's not so that we can avoid suffering, because it's going to happen. But it's so that we have a body with whom we are connected to bear with us in the midst of our suffering. When Paul wrote to the church, he said, when one rejoices, everyone rejoices with that one. And the word there is doxa, the same word we use for doxology when we sing our praise. That is to say, when one is rejoicing because God is using them, we're all implicated in it. It's our victory. It's our shared moment. But when one suffers, Paul said, all of us are implicated in it. All of us. And the word in Greek is paksa. It's reminiscent of the Hebrew pasha which is used to describe a pastoral lamb who takes our sufferings in the pastor. There's a very liturgical feeling to Paul's language when he says, when one suffers, all suffer, and when one rejoices, all rejoice. And when we suffer, there are powerful, beautiful moments when the church can come around. We look up and we say, our brother's had a nice, wonderful run, and he has banked a lot of memories, but now is his time, now is his season. This is his moment to suffer. Let us come around him and be with him in that moment. And in moments that would make the shaky knees quake of people who have no faith, the church comes and surrounds people. I know you know this. I've watched you do it hundred times. What other, what other reason can there be except the Holy Spirit bringing his church together for a high school senior to go and spend an entire night sitting and holding a woman's hand as she comes to the end of her life because she has no other family within a hundred miles, a thousand miles. But here he is, sitting with her, helping her along. The friend of mine remarked the other day, Mother Teresa, you know, her ministry was nothing more than going out every day and finding the most critical people on the streets and bringing them back to her place so that loving angels of God in the, in the clothing of nuns could look them in the eye and tell them how loved they are by God. To tell them that suffering does not disqualify them from God's grace. That suffering is not a badge of punishment. That suffering does not mean you've been abandoned. That suffering does not mean that we are somehow inferior to others. And I, I see the world just step away from those who are suffering as if it's going to be contagious. Well, it is contagious, and we already have it. But I watch the church go in and reach out and pull toward themselves those who suffer and say, your faith may be on the very edge, and this suffering may be the most awful thing you've ever experienced, but the steadfast love of God has not failed. 
God loves you. And in his name, so do we. You are much to love with God. And my friend was telling me he had been reading about Mother Teresa's ministry. And, and she had come to a group of 30 or 40 lepers. And she said to them, you know, you are so loved by God. You are so loved by God. And one of them leaned up and said, would you say that again? It seemed to help a little bit. Would you say that again? Well, it does help, doesn't it? When we talk about loving one another deeply, from the heart, what we're really saying is that we are a people who are not afraid to walk into one another's suffering. Somebody says, Pastor, I don't think I can make it much longer. I find myself saying with words I didn't even know were in there. That's okay, I'm having a good day. Let me, let me take you through this part. Let's walk there with Christ together. There's no way Peter could have ended today's lesson except at the threshold of the gates of heaven. A reminder of the resurrection. A reminder that those who are in Christ and who can somehow find a way to connect their suffering to the suffering of Christ and can suffer in ways that are redemptive in this world, that they have waiting for them. As surely as the ark bore Noah through the storm, they have waiting for them on the other side of this world and their baptism, a place of peace and glory and of everlasting joy. And because we have gone through our suffering, we will never in heaven ever wait for the other shoe to drop. Anybody come from a family where there's another shoe waiting to drop all the time? Raise your hand if you do. Yeah. Yeah. We've had jackets made in my family. Well, sure, that was great, but you never know. Something could happen. <laughs> Something could... Well, listen. Something is going to happen. We're going to be brought through the trials and the sufferings and the struggles of this world. We're going to come through with flying clubs because we're going to come through it together. We're going to hold one another. We're going to pray with one another. We're going to praise God together. And on the other side of all of it, on the other side of all of it, we're going to say, there was God in the form of Jesus hanging on a cross, suffering right with us every step of the way. And if he is for us, who can be against us forever and ever?